Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Secrets of the Sire. We do this every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Sire Studios Digital Network. That is YouTube.com slash Secrets of the Sire, Facebook.com slash Secrets of the Sire, Twitch.tv slash Secrets of the Sire, and SecretsOfTheSire.com, or go to SireDigital.com. Tonight, Game of Thrones, Season 8 finale predictions sure to go wrong, <laughs> D&D, Co-director Brian Stillman and a special guest, our Game of Thrones expert, my lovely wife, Mrs. Christina Dolce. But first, I'm your host, Michael Dolce, and joined, as always, by my co-host extraordinaire, although he might get bumped if she does well, because she's right here, <laughs> Hassan Godwin. How you doing, sir? You're convincing me to throw this, then. Once <laughs> out, like, like this whole time, this whole time I could just leave. Like, yeah, I could get off this midland podcast. Yeah, easy. <laughs> it's always been easy, <laughs> except except I'll keep digging you. It'd be like you're on, you're on. I, I left, I quit. Be like, no, no, no. no. This is it. <laughs> Here's a link. That's Here's like a that. Link. Uh, Attach the link. That's like that Seinfeld episode where where George tried to break up and she's like, no, this is a two way thing. We both have to agree to break up. <laughs> and he's like, what do I do? <laughs> and that's it. They were they were, they were together, and that, that was it. She's she's like, no, I'm not I'm not throwing this way. All right, I've actually had experiences like that. Cersei's fate was revealed. A lot of people complaining, a lot of people talking. Uh, but first, obviously, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones to this point, uh, well, spoilers are coming. So I can't imagine at this point, at this stage in the game, if I, I've actually seen a lot of people. Yeah. Who are like posting online saying, like, starting up this thing called Game of Thrones. Too bad. We're yeah. talking spoilers. We're talking season eight, episode five, season eight in general, The Bells. Hassan, are you in the crowd of people that is now unequivoc unequivocally unhappy with how this season has gone and how this particular episode went? Are you kind of okay with everything or are you in the I am in favor of everything that just took place in episode five? Uh, I'm in the middle. I'm kind of okay with it, but uh, I, I acknowledge the season is very flawed. It's very, and I mean that most of it's because of the, of how short it is and yeah. how little time they have to, um, to basically wrap. I think it's arrogant to try to take a story as massive as this that's been on for eight years yeah. And to try to wrap it up in six episodes. Um, yeah. But it's been, uh, it's, it's been an impressive five episodes so far, you know, just visually and yeah. with the events that are going on. It's just that um, it's a, I don't know what you would call it. I, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I find myself, I'm, I'm at odds with a lot of people who hate it. Not because they hate it, but because, some of the reasons that they say that they hate it. Yeah. And then I agree with them about a lot of things also. So, yeah. Um, I, I think there's, there's a difference. And we've talked about this before on the show between, you know, outcome and execution, right? Story and execution. I'm actually really totally fine. And my wife will interject in a second because I think uh, she has some disagreements here. All of the. Well, we both have to agree with her because she's a producer. So <laughs> The character. The right. Time. <laughs> the character 
progressions. I'm okay with the outcome that Danny is is now the Mad Queen. I I'm okay with the fact that you know Jon Snow chose the wrong decision because he was really focused on the Night King. I'm okay with the fact that you know all of these things that Cersei met her match and met her fate and Euron and all these things. The execution of it, I can like 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 you, I can agree with some of it is a little off. Now you're not happy at all though <laughs> that Danny went Mad yeah. Queen on all this. No, I think it was just rushed. Yeah. You know, like they had six episodes. Who just decided that it was going to be six? The producers. HBO, the producers. No, the producers. HBO wanted them to continue. They wanted like yeah. two, at least two full more seasons, possibly they three. Should have, they should have done. They should have done this season. Should have been the Night King, and then yeah. next season should should have all been. Yes. About yeah. I know. I, I don't disagree. It's funny though. I think when you're doing a show for as long as they have, I mean, we 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 sometimes tend to forget that these are human beings. Yes, they have the most massively popular show on the planet at this particular moment in history. Even now. Even, even now. Yeah. Even and this there's... show is the highest rated of all their shows this, Correct. this last episode. So, I mean, it's not like they're taking a dive. I mean, you know, like the uh, public opinion is against them, but it's not like their uh, popularity is taking a Correct. dive. Correct. Correct. And, and it's that being said, there is something to be said about the human toll that things these things take on a person uh the secrecy that they have to continually be in because of this they're shooting and they have to worry about helicopters and spoilers uh they also have just the, the mounting pressure of ending something that in their minds was probably supposed to have been ended already before they even got to this point so i can kind of see them you know two years ago being like man I've been doing this for six years now like yeah my wife hasn't seen me my kids miss me <laughs> I don't know what's going on with the world outside. I can't walk around without, you know, feeling that I'm going to give something away. Like, I wonder if the human toll of, of being the producers and creators of this massive hit that is Game of Thrones is just taking its toll. And, and that's why they said, we're out. Because they only wanted to do one more season. They said six books, six seasons. And they were supposed to end it after six. And HBO is like, or seven, was it seven books, seven seasons? I think that was what it was. Yeah, seven books, seven, books, seven yeah. seasons. And HBO's like, well, you're a cash cow. Can you please continue to make seasons? So they said, all right, we'll break the season seven up into two seasons then. That's why there's abbreviated seasons. They really had planned to end this all in one season, which I agree with you guys both, is doing it a complete disservice. Hmm. But I'm not upset with how it's turned out, though. I mean, overall. I guess. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of prophecies that were in the books that there's no clear way that they're going to be resolved in the show. Yeah. And if you're George R.R. R. Martin and you created this whole fantasy world and spent all this time, like, detailing these prophecies, it's just sloppy. Like, they're not going to be in the show. The world makes no sense. Like, it just, that's what makes me upset about the whole thing. Aside from being a producer, her credentials are that she read all the books. I did. Repeatedly, too, I think, right? Or you, <laughs> or you want to do it. Or Hassan, you're the repeated uh, offender? Yeah, I've read them twice. Yeah. So I, sh I was going to go back and read them again. But so that's, that's, that's her a, credentials as expert here is that, you know, you, you've told me this. Though, that's a huge chunk of time out of your, out of your life trying to go through those. That's all the, yeah. it's all the time that I'm spending with you. She's got to fill it somehow. So, <laughs> I read the books. you can have them back. Yeah, <laughs> right. Thank you. So, without belaboring the, is it rushed or is it not? What's that? 
I said too late. Oh, we yeah. didn't belabor it yet. If we continue, <laughs> no, no you, you belabor it. No, I'm just kidding. I actually do find it funny how it's reached the mainstream level, though. I was watching uh, the Dan Lebetard show the other day, and he starts talking about it, and he's saying to his his uh, sidekick Stu Gatz, he's like, "It's he's he's a peripheral Game of Thrones fan, so he's just like it's it's now reached that point where it's taken a turn." And this beloved show that people have loved for seven years is now taking the turn to they could do it better. <laughs> you know, the level of the level of enjoyment has gone from I really enjoy this show to let me take it from here. This is how it should have went. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem with fandom now is everybody it's not it's not everyone deciding, well, I don't I really don't like the way this is going or I really don't enjoy this show now. It's everyone deciding how the show should actually happen. Right. Whereas I agree with not liking it, I don't agree with it. Your, your fixes wouldn't help. I mean, some of the, some of the um, predictions that people were coming up with have been so outlandishly terrible, you know, <laughs> that, that even, even, even if I don't like what we got, I'm glad we didn't get what they thought we were going to get. Like, you know, Tyrion as a, as a Targaryen. Uh, Tyrion's going to ride a dragon. Yeah. Um, you got like Drogon had dragon babies, and that's read you know, that one. Mike won't yeah. read any of that. No. He doesn't want to know, so I can't discuss it with anyone. But now you can because <laughs> there's only one episode left. So forget Mike. Yeah, this but... We'll just talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just ignore him. We'll, yeah, I'll see you guys later. Yeah, it's not <laughs> for lunch. I'm out. <laughs> and it's just, it's. I mean, I don't think anybody could do it better than what these guys have done. Now, having said that. I, I really think that they messed up. I, I don't know why they insisted on making this season show short. Look, that's, that's the thing. They're tired, right? they're tired of it. I get it. But, you know, this is a commitment that you made. Yeah. That's the thing. You're tired of a lot of things. You're tired of doing your job every day, you know. But if you don't do it, you get fired. So, I mean, it's a commitment that you made. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like, if you take – not the Bells, because I thought the Bells was great, but the, the episode previous, they literally – like super glued two episodes together into one. At one point, we're reminiscing about, hey, we beat the Night King, this is great. And you have that great sequence with Jamie and Brienne. You have all these really great things. And then just before you can even take that all in, or even, you know, theoretically speaking, they could have expanded that into an entire episode. And I think all of us would have been really cool with that. You're immediately into, into King's Landing. You're immediately seeing one of the dragons just I don't know, magically get shot down, you know, yeah, out of thin awful. air. And Euron sorry. comes through and, and all this stuff. And it's like, and it's, and it's truncated. Um, Danny's, uh, who I, I know is, I'm going to mispronounce her name, uh, you know, gets her Ms. head chopped Sande. off. Yeah, Miss yeah. Sande. Uh, I was going to say Mel Sandra, but that's not right. Miss Sande gets her head chopped <laughs> off. I mean, she dead already. <laughs> it's like all these things kind of happen in the span of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And you can sit there and say, well, Game of Thrones has always thrown you curveballs. It's not the curveballs that are throwing us. It's just the rapid fire in which they're shooting them at us. Uh, that, that to me was where I'm like, mm, something's, you know, something feels a little crunched. Not forced, but crunched. You know, the outcomes are fine. All of these outcomes are great. You know, yeah. the, des the descent of madness that Danny succumbs to is basically one quick scene of a bad hair day and some, and some smeared makeup. And then you're like, oh, she's nuts now. She's crazy. Whereas if you did have the luxury See, I, to... I don't, I don't, I don't 100% agree with that because she's been taught, even when, before she was technically mad, she's yeah. been talking about burning down King's Landing sure. last season. Okay, so you're talking about someone waiting for two seasons, the equivalent of two even seasons. Even more, even more actually. Uh, well, if you I'm go... talking about like King's Landing in particular, not okay. 
not just burning her her enemies but yeah he's been talking you know and everyone's like well look if you burn that if you burn the city down like everyone's gonna hate you and no one's gonna no one's gonna love you you know so you gotta you gotta deal with uh you know uh all these uh political machinations so that you can actually take over with yeah. the, with the support of the people and she's just she just wants it you know now she doesn't want a prolonged yeah. war and she's so i say like one of the one of the one of the flaws is she didn't come in and try to take the temperature of the country she didn't try to understand the country she did commit a large part of her army to this war but you can't say she did it for someone else because once you find out there's an army of dead people that are going to take over the country that you're trying to conquer yeah it yeah. is in your best interest to go take care of the dead people before you take care of the living people. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, um, and you know, if she, she knew that if she helped John, she would have John's support. She would have his army also yeah. to help her as she t- tries to take over from Cersei. So it's, it is kind of her impetuousness that has caused the situation and her insistence that everybody, they're kind of weird mixed message of yeah. wanting to break the wheel, but still wanting everyone to bow. You know, there, there's there's always been like these signs that this, that that her process isn't exactly 100% on on message, you know? Yeah. And um, she's had a whole lot of people to help like, you know, straighten out her, her curves. And now that all these people have died, all of, you know, through, through various means, and yeah. uh, two of her kids, she lost two children, which is drive any mother insane. Sure. Um, it's it, you know, it doesn't seem like it's too much of a stretch for me. This situation, um, however, no, but vi- but visually, thought that she was a hero. Yeah, that you know, I can understand how that that would be jarring. I don't know why anybody is yeah. is is finding heroes in Game of Thrones, though. Yeah. This show is not about heroes. So That was your immediate reaction, though, too, uh, Christina. (laughs) Mrs. Dolce. Uh, That was your immediate reaction, though, too. Yeah. No, no, no. She's agreeing with you. (laughs) Yeah, but it's still a fix because she's the producer of the show. I told everyone who watches the show that that the two of you are related. (laughs) I suspected it. Somehow, I just had a suspicion. Actually, technically, we're not related. We're married. It's much different. That's a, that's a form of relation, sir. I guess so, but it's when you say it like that, I feel like it's a more of a. She is. She is technically your next of a John, of a John Snow, yeah. Danny uh, situation. <laughs> no, I I'm not older than you. <laughs> uh, but your initial reaction was you didn't like the fact because Danny was supposed to be different, right? Yeah, it bothered me. You have the whole, the whole series like freeing slaves from chains, striking down the maesters, coming in saving the north like she she would have had major props from everybody in king's landing for essentially saving all their butts mm-hmm. and then she's like i hear those bells ah, <laughs> i'm gonna burn them anyway like she just didn't i know i understand she lost miss sandish she lost two dragons but she lost Viserion at the beginning right and she didn't go into like insane at that point yeah i mean i well, get what i get what Hassan's saying too though because she had that small council with Varys and um, Tyrion, and it was getting harder and harder mm-hmm. for them to get her to agree. Yeah. Like, she was hesitating more and more yeah. and listening to what they had to say. So you could kind of see it coming, but 
the women and children, dude. Upsetting. <laughs> and Varys' but, betrayal. But after she saved all the I other mean, people, it was like the mother of these people. It's like here's what I've I've been saying, like from from yeah. the start about it. She's always been like kind of scorched earth, always yeah. burning her enemies. Mm-hmm. It's just up until now we didn't like everyone that she burned. True. But that's <laughs> that that burning them is the right answer. And now that we, we see how she would deal with a situation with innocent people, mm-hmm. and that she has the same method, she's like, look, uh, if you don't just bow down and do what I say, I'm just going to set everything on fire. Right. Basically, if you watch her through, because I, I do cycle, I did cycle through the show again uh, in, in the process of watching this last season. If she, she does, her answer to everything is to set it on fire. Right. Yeah. Every time she hits a wall, she sets it. She just sets the wall on fire, or she threatens to set the wall on fire. And because she was up against like these ridiculous odds in the beginning, and and you and you're with her as you watch her build up her, you know, this 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 uh, amazing force of devoted followers. You're 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 in the mindset that she is in the moral right, right. But her methods are not, you know, are arguably not the right method she does right. she solved very few problems in the in the last seven seasons diplomatically she every time something happened she showed up she set everything on fire with her dragons and then everyone remembered that they should be worshiping her well how, how's this also for foreshadowing in the prophecy which was in season two in the house of the undying in season two danny has a vision of walking through the red keeps throne room the ceiling is broken open Fans assumed the white particles falling into the room was snow and that winter had come to the south. In Sunday's episode, Danny is finally taking King's Landing and buildings are indeed being destroyed, but it's not snowing, it's raining ash from the dragon's destruction. The season two scene is a vision of Daenerys taking King's Landing only by becoming the queen of the ashes, in quotes. In the same season, she also literally declares, we will lay waste to armies and burn cities to the ground. Uh, the mass crucifixion and marine, you know, her... her uh, tendency was to then, um, you know, uh, in retaliation with regard for their individual guilt or innocent, Sir Barristan advises her to be more merciful. Revenge for Sir Barristan, also in season four, after Sir Barristan was killed by the terror group Sons of the Harpy. In response, Danny brings three masters to her dragon pit. All swear they have nothing to do with the rogue ones. She burns one of them alive to send a message to the others. Uh, and again, kind of to your point, Hassan, we were happy when she did that. We were like, yeah! Now we're kind of like, Oh, uh, yeah, because that's I, not an organ. Set, I'll set you on fire is not an organizing principle. You know, yeah. do what I say or I'll set you on fire is not diplomacy. It's not leadership. It's just strength and power. Th- this is yeah. this is severity. This might come off as a tad insensitive, insensitive and I, and I want to preface by saying that because I actually don't mean any desensitivity by this. But you're uh, going to say it anyway. Yes. <laughs> that's why I preface it. That's what's called a preface. Okay. Yeah, mm. I know. Chris Cornell, rest in, rest in peace, uh, an amazing, talented musician, amazing lyricist. His lyrics throughout the entire 90s run of Soundgarden are dark and depressing, talking about suicidal thoughts, talking about depression, talking about all this stuff. He has but a just, song called Like Suicide. So, right, I mean, right. But even you never like felt, you know, when, he, when, when it became, when, when the day came that he actually did commit suicide it was a total shock because you got to see this public persona of him 
You see him in concerts. He seems happy. He seems wonderful. Yet the groundwork literally, then all of a sudden we went back and go, oh, he was serious. He wasn't just talking about a moment well, that maybe he the felt same with Kurt Cobain. Like all yeah. he saw, that, that entire first album is about committing suicide. Right. You know? And right. everyone's like, oh, hey, this, this just came out of left field. Yeah, no, it didn't. Right. Yep. And that's where the comparison in my head, that's what immediately came to me. I was like, wow, maybe there's, you know, the writing has been on the wall. Uh, the other thing that uh, we were all excited for was the Hound finally takes on the Clegane Mountain. Ball! <laughs> yes. Kind were, of. We, were we excited? Were we happy? Were we, were, I'm sure everyone was excited that it took place. I, I, you know, here's the thing. As not a book reader. Yeah. Should read I, books, man. Nah, they need to have pictures. <laughs> read books. Uh, I was not as excited. I feel like if you read the books, you were really excited for the Hound versus the Mountain. Is this is this true? It's really not even that much. It, I'll, I'll. It's not really that much in the book as the show. Yeah. It really, is fans of the show who have. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say personally, I don't know how. The, uh, it's like that sibling rivalry, you know. Like he did like some not nice. Things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, their rivalry, yes. But was yeah. was did you did you get the impression that a click game bowl was going to happen in the books? Or? Oh no, Buzzfeed. And then I bought into that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> she is obsessed, is obsessed with the post Game of Thrones Twitter feed and post it's so Game funny. of Thrones. It's so fun. People just come up like these people are geniuses. They just come up on the fly with these memes and these like. They find memes everywhere to explain the episode. It's just, it's really good. <laughs> I, f I feel like Game of Thrones, much like Star Wars, right, I feel like it has this deeper, some people have this deeper affection for the mythology and the behind the scenes and the deeper relationships that exist. Whereas I kind of am entertained by it and I'm impressed by the storytelling. That's kind of where my limit goes because one thing that kind of happened, and, and at this point it's been eight seasons, I couldn't remember, but is the fact that he, the, a no one really wins the fight, but b he has to overcome the hound has to overcome his fear of fire essentially, and basically lunge the mountain into the into the flaming pit for him to actually vanquish him, and uh, the actor who plays him. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Rory McCann says it's a glorious death. He's laughing at it. The hound can see the mountain can't be killed by sticking a dagger in his eye. He has to be burnt. Of all the things Clegane has to do, he has to go into the fire. That's the sacrifice, but his pain is over. And I um, yeah, I mean, they could have done it in a better way, thematically, because, mm -hmm. I mean, he knocks him into, he knocks him through a wall, and they fall into the fire. So arguably... You could you could argue he didn't even know that wall was going to give way and that they were going to fall into into fire. Yeah, not like he purposely saw fire. Right. Decided to jump into it, but it still thematically it works. I think he kind of um, knew also when he did it. So. Well, he knew he wasn't going to win. Yeah. Did, did <laughs> after, get... after you stab someone through the head and they pull the knife out, yeah. you're, you're lowering your chances. Of, yeah, here's uh, the funny thing: when they took when he took off his his uh, mask, I thought it was Varys actually for a second. <laughs> I was like, "What's Varys doing there?" Oh, it's just another <laughs> bald guy. Yeah. He over. <laughs> and and uh, someone on Twitter had remarked that he looked like uh, Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi when you take the mask off. <laughs> yeah, but everybody who's bald and looks scaly is yeah. always. He's looking like uh, Darth Vader. Did so. Clegane Ball live up to the hype for you? Yeah, because you had that good, like, 
pound one-liner where he's like, why won't you die? And it's like, even during that fight with, like, the vendetta, he still had his, like, sense of humor, Mm -hmm. and they wrote him with that. So they made it kind of amusing to watch. Yeah. So one thing, that was the the other big thing. Varys uh, being killed at the beginning, which... uh, I don't think we're shocked by it. It was no. it was a turn. It was a twist. But again, that at least kind of flowed pretty naturally. Uh, the ending of Cersei and the ending of Jaime, people are pissed. <laughs> They're pissed at how it went down. Now, you had mentioned there's prophecies galore that are yeah. not coming to pass. What are those prophecies from the books? The battling that- car. The, yeah, yeah, what Hassan said. Like, basically, he, a younger brother. Okay, wait, back up. <laughs> so Cersei met with like a witch in the woods that first saw her yeah, future, which we saw in the show. Right, and yeah, said Maggie you're gonna have toad. three children, only three children. Oh, Maggie the Frog. I'm sorry. Matt, yeah, okay. Maggie I don't remember. Frog. You read them twice, obviously. Huh. Yeah. I'm like, I read it once. Well, I, kind of- I, I read them, but I've also been watching all this. You know, the same stuff that you've been watching. All this after. Yeah. Or after, after action reports from oh, YouTube, yeah. on YouTube or all over the internet. Yeah, so she, she also said that the Valonker is going to strangle you to death, yeah. and that means younger brother. So was it Tyrion or Jamie? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought with Jamie's redemption arc that he was going to be the one to kill her. Mm-hmm. And no. <laughs> Arguably, her little brother was the one who did it, though, because he did, yeah, Tyrion did. bring the army to, you know, to, right. to crush his sister. And his, his sister was thoroughly crushed in that very <laughs> yeah. one battle. He was like, go down I, in the cellars, so through were, the sewers, you'll get that, out. People were pissed that it was a metaphor. They're like, we didn't want a metaphor. We wanted to literally yeah, see Jamie. Well, that's, that's the problem. You, it's not like she got away and yeah. they didn't fulfill the, the prophecy. It's just they didn't like how the prophecy was fulfilled. But I don't understand. I, I, get, I get not happy being happy with it, but I don't understand like having expectations in a show that is notorious for defying your expectations. And I'm not even... I'm not even talking of subversion of expectations. I mean, this show basically started that. Yeah. I mean, if they beheaded Ned Stark, that's <laughs> it. I was talking to some other people and I said, um, like the, the show starts with a kid who runs right into the White Walkers and is so terrified about what he sees. He sees dead people and he says he sees like demons, you know, with blue eyes killing his, his friends. He's so terrified. He runs away gets caught by the good guys. You get caught by the Starks. Mm-hmm. And they chop his head off for running away from the Night's Watch. So he, the, so his reward for surviving right. this, this unbelievable encounter with uh, the supernatural is to get your head cut off by the law. <laughs> I mean, and that's how the show starts. And then, you know, this kid's climbing around. You think he's going to be a hero. He gets pushed out a window. And then no one knows who, who pushed him out the window. So he's not, he's obviously not going to be the one to take us through the entire story. But the other kid who you think maybe, okay, maybe it's going to be this kid because they're, they're spending a lot of time with him. They, they ship him off to the foreign legion, basically to the wall. And he gets stuck there and he finds out that the wall sucks. And you know, now he's nothing he could do because he's signed on for life. So he's not going to be involved in any of the other uh, uh, political craziness that's going on down South. Yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, not yet. I mean, it took it takes him six years before he can get untangled <laughs> from all that. And then he, his dad goes down south, and he you think he's going to be the moral center, and they cut his head off. <laughs> That's season one. That's all that stuff happened in season one. I don't understand how we get to season eight 
and people are still like, I can't believe that they didn't, uh, you know, fall through with these threads and these arcs are not completed. The show's not about heroes. The show's not really about arcs. It's about, it's about one-upmanship. It's mm. about people trying to, they're all trying to get this throne, right? They're all, the, the, the art, the act of going after the throne is, is the corrupting uh, force that makes everybody kind of crazy. And it makes everybody do like these desperate things because there's a way everybody could get that throne if they wait, if they play the long game. Everyone could get that throne bloodlessly if sure. they play the long game. And nobody has ever taken the long route. Everyone's always gone for the expedience. All, all from, from Aegon and Heron Hal and how he just burned, you know, all the all the uh, all the ironborn in Heron Hal, you know, in all the way back in Aegon's conquest three hundred years earlier. You know, or feel the fire of that, that that situation mm-hmm. from uh, Tywin Lannister killing all the Starks in the, at the at the Red Wedding. You know, with with treachery and and I mean, nobody is willing to to hammer it out. Nobody's willing to negotiate. Everyone's using treachery and and deceit, or or you know, or un, unprecedented power to get what they want. I don't see how watching Daenerys. And, I, and, and her name is Daenerys World, not yeah. Daenerys. <laughs> crazy every time I hear people like review the show and they call her by her wrong name. Um, it's good to know other people butcher things too. Yes, not just you. I mean, I know you're, you're the leader of butchering things. <laughs> I, 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 I did get have my competition. <laughs> and so that, uh, it, uh, I, I understand that the truncation of the season is a problem. I understand the writing has been has been subpar since pretty much around season six, since they ran out of books. I think the when writing is the same. Writing, when you say writing, what specifically? Yeah. Because I don't think, Uh-oh, I don't think now. interactions between the characters have been any different. I don't this, think the scenes this, have been any less dramatic. This is I reminiscent think, of another discussion we had with us on the other side of, of that discussion. I, I think that it is truncated and therefore it feels... Well, I was about to say the dialogue is still solid. Okay. The writing in that sense is still solid. Okay. The, the problem is that without the books, there's a, there's a pacing issue. Yeah. Um, I, but, you know, I, a, I wonder if it's the book. A, a gravitas. It's free of this gravitas. There's a gravity of sure. there's weight to all these decisions and all the things that mm-hmm. happen. And all, all decisions when you had the book as the book material led to in into other repercussions. Yeah. Everything, all your decisions actually led to things getting more and more complicated and less and less uh, clear and everything is more tangled. And then, you know, um, as you watch it, you start to realize you start to slowly get weaned off of the tropes that we, that we grew up with. Sure. Like, you know, well, this guy's obviously not going to be the hero. Right. This, you know, this guy thought that it was going to be the villain is they're, they're flat him out they're adding, they're adding more dimension to him so he mm-hmm. obviously even though he pushes children out of windows he's uh, there's obviously more to him than just being a villain you know this other guy's really smart even though he's a bastard this other person is really not so smart even though he's the, the virtuous hero yeah um, so all these things kind of fall apart and they're done in such a way they're done with such gravity that you're that you accept um things not happening in the natural, in what we have come to consider the natural order of the way stories are supposed to transpire. So, so that being said, but when they lost the books, 
They lost the, the only the only thing they have <laughs> left is their ability to subvert expectations. Sure. They don't know how to, to, to do it in a manner that people that people find delightful. That being they said, do it in a manner that people find kind of jarring and, and, and terrifying. <laughs> we got we got about a minute left in this segment. Give me that being all being said and, and, and all wise and accountable. What is your prediction sure to go wrong for the series finale next week, honey? Who ends up on the throne? Uh, I was talking to his son, honey. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, okay, I know what I think is going to happen. So go ahead. Is I think John is going to end up with the throne because, of course, he doesn't want it. He mm-hmm. ends up with everything he doesn't want, mm-hmm. like this whole time. So he's going to fall into that and then i think he's gonna peace out of westeros i think he's gone i think he's gonna be like no thanks and that he's he, just gonna he's gonna so alexa fox actually posted that that westeros. Jon snow is one of the most incompetent you know rulers of all time that he actually hasn't solved anything he hasn't actually completed any tasks he didn't kill the night king he didn't do all this stuff and he's just gonna that's not true that's idiot. A, that's a, that's an oversimplification. I, I don't disagree with you on that at all. Uh, but he's going to idiot his way into the throne. And then at the end, when the dust is finally settled, he's going to be like, I'm out. He's always said all along, I don't want it. Yeah. But the people are going to give it to him and they're going to want him. So the only way he can remove himself from the running is either leave Westeros or kill himself. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, wouldn't that be a twist? Jon <laughs> Snow at the end, just jumping <laughs> Tom, off. He does a Tommy. He doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Hassan, prediction sure to go wrong. Uh, I, I kind of have to agree. I, if it's sure to go wrong, I think I would say Jon Snow becomes uh, the king of the Seven yeah. Kingdoms. And everyone um, lives happily ever after. And everybody and everybody's yay, Jon Snow. Daenerys, <laughs> if it's all if it's all sure to go wrong, Daenerys is like, you know what? After I burn this city down, it's all out of my blood. I'm going back to to. Uh, to, to Essos because yeah. everybody loves me there. So I'm just <laughs> going to pack my stuff up and leave. Here's, here's the kingdom. Enjoy. We'll send, we'll send ravens back and forth. Over yeah, that's there. Right. That's no. gonna say. Just bend the knee. Yeah. I'll know, I'll, know I'll know if you're lying. Yeah, exactly. The big theory no, now. That ain't going to happen. The big theory now is Sansa's obviously coming to take that back and she's going to be the one eventually on the Iron Throne. But, I think too, I think Sansa's too smart to want to be queen of the. Yeah, I think she's seen it destroy like bunches of people, and I don't think she's gonna want it. But who knows? My prediction, sure to go wrong, is that Jon Snow will end up on the throne because it will piss so many people off <laughs> if he true. ends up there. Like, do you understand how much that is just gonna royally uh, piss people off? What I think, though, if I really thought about it, is the most logical person if he manages to survive next episode, but she seems to always survive is Tyrion. Tyrion is, would actually be a great leader. There would be some sort of poetic arc to it that he ends up assuming the throne. I remember in season two thinking like how great a tactician he was and how great a leader he was. I know he's messed up a lot as the hand of the queen. Yeah. When they ran out of books, he ran out of smarts. Right. Mm -hmm. But, that being said, I think he would He's also... He's a Lannister, though. But I think there's there's something about a Lannister still sitting on the throne when all is said and done. So 
All right. I, you know what? To, to be honest with you, I know I know we have no time left. To be honest with you, I actually suspect that it's going to, in some weird way, my my longtime suspicion is going to end in some kind of democracy. Yeah. Without without rulership whatsoever. Yeah. Hey, we never saw a body with Jamie and Cersei. You never know. They were just crushed. There's always that possibility. And then, you know, Tyrion finds Cersei trying to climb out of a a pile of rubble and he strangles her and then everybody's happy with the valve. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? She's like crawling out. (laughs) Like, I got you. I found you. (laughs) All right. When we come back, uh, we're going to actually have my interview. Uh, Hassan and Christina are going to go off to the side and they are going to just discuss the Game of Thrones (laughs) books. Uh, And we're going to have my interview. It's an awesome interview. Uh, Actually, so fitting when we book this. Uh, just because of the influence it's had on Game of Thrones. There's a new uh, documentary coming out called Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons. We've got the co-director, Brian Stillman, coming up next. Do you like comic books and movies like The Avengers? How about TV or pop culture like Game of Thrones or Star Wars? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of The Secrets of the Sire podcast. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin, we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. And you never know who will drop by to chat. To date, we've welcomed actors Kevin Bacon, Paul Reiser, True Blood's Christina Anapow, and Buffy's Nicholas Brendan to the show. We've been privileged to interview rockers Chris Cornell, Macy Gray, Billy Corgan, and more. And we've even had Jackie the Joke Man himself from Howard Stern in studio to share some laughs. So join us every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on youtube.com slash secrets of the sire for brand new episodes. Take a moment, subscribe to our channel, and be on the lookout for some major new announcements coming soon. For more info, log on to secretsofthesire.com. Welcome back to Secrets of the Sire. We do this every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, on the Sire Digital Network. We talk comics, movies, TV, and pop culture. I am thrilled right now to welcome the co-director of The Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is out now on Netflix. And Mr. Brian Stillman, how are you doing, sir? I am good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so you are the co-director along with Kelly Stagel. Uh, you're also involved, or Kelly Slagel, sorry. And you're also involved in Netflix's big super hit, The Toys That Made Us. Uh, talk to us about your role on each of those shows. And, you know. Um, well, uh, I, the Beholder, I am the co-director. Like you said, I'm the co-producer, one of uh, three with Kelly and Seth Polanski. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was the shooter and director of photography on I have the beholder. So um, did the interviews, most of the interviews along with my partners, um, very hands-on. I originally approached them with the idea to make this movie. We were friends from our previous projects um, and we uh, 
you know, it occurred to me that it'd be fun to work with them. I knew they were gamers. Sure. I knew they could bring something to it as filmmakers because they make more narrative projects. I make documentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it'd be fun. And it turned out to be uh, a blast. Um, awesome. So that's Eye of the Beholder. Um, Toys That Made Us, I am, I, my title is weird. I'm, I'm technically a <laughs> consulting producer, but um, for as much consulting as I did in the beginning, um, they eventually brought me on as uh, kind of, I guess, a field producer and shooter and interviewer. So I do a number of the interviews um, East Coast stuff, um, generally, um, yeah. for the show. So if someone needs to be, uh, if they need someone, they'll send me along with all my gear, I'll uh-huh. sit down, produce it all, get it back to them, and then they do their magic. So, um, yeah, kind of depends on what they need. Very cool, very cool. Uh, Eye of the Beholder, I thought was really fascinating. First off, are you a big gamer? Are you a big Dungeons Dragons guy? Um, I am. I've been gaming since the the early 80s. Um, I grew up on first edition um, and a little bit of second edition. Um, I played that for uh, all the way up through college. Mm -hmm. Um, And I uh, eventually got out of gaming for a little while, got back in with fifth edition, which is what I've been playing now, fifth edition and first edition at uh, conventions and stuff. So I am a, I, I'm very much a a gamer, a D and D player. Mm -hmm. Um, I absolutely love the game. (laughs) Uh, It's always been a part of my life. And um, the art was always a big part of it too, for me. So it it was sort of a natural um, thing when I'm into something, I decide, okay, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a filmmaker, and I'm into this thing. Sure, why don't I spend three years making a movie about it? So that's kind <laughs> of where it all comes project, together. Must have, real, must have been a real drag for you than to work on. <laughs> oh, you know, there's nothing worse than meeting your idols and the artists that you grew up on and getting to ask them all sorts of questions about how they came up with some of your favorite art. It is a terrible, terrible experience. <laughs> you know, so it's funny. I'm a graphic novelist by trade. Uh, we do the podcast and kind of use our knowledge for that. So for me, it was actually very fascinating to see. I'm not a gamer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm obviously an artist and and I love the art world in general. And so to see this, I mean, what was it like to talk to the artists? What was it like to experience the creative vision through these artists that you interviewed? You know, it was fascinating. These are people I grew up with, um, many of them. You know, these are people who shaped what my idea of fantasy art is and shaped the way that I thought of these worlds um, that I played in when I played Mm -hmm. D&D. So they had a really impactful role on me growing up. Um, so having a chance to sit down with them yeah. was like uh, the ultimate fanboy experience. You know, I've been a journalist for a very long time and I've, I've covered stories ranging from, you know, buildings on fire, uh, drug laws, things like that. Very heavy, serious stuff. I've also covered music. I've covered entertainment. I was a music journalist for a long time. So I've met all sorts of people yeah. um, and I've maintained my composure in front of all of them. You know, yeah. I've met celebrities that I've admired and things like that. There were so many times when I nearly lost it interviewing these artists. Yeah, you know, sure. the, the fanboy was so overwhelmed by the sheer enormity of it and mm-hmm. how cool it was. Like, I'm sitting across the, a, a camera from Jeff Easley, you yeah. know, or Larry Elmore, or Clyde Caldwell, or Diesel LaForce, or Jeff D. I mean, I could go on and on, all these people that I grew up with. So that was amazing. Um, but also the new artists, the people who I hadn't grown up with, mm-hmm. but who I was getting into through fifth edition, through earlier editions of the game. Sure. Um, their work is just so good and so immersive and so entertaining, you know, and, and technically proficient that sitting across from them was a thrill as well. Um, you know, here I am fanboying out just thinking about it. So it really, it was great. It was great. What kind of, what kind of questions, uh, did you guys dive into with the artists? I'm always fascinated by this too, uh, just to see 
you know, both from an outsider and an insider perspective, what, you know, people always tend to ask, like, where do you get your creativity from? And where did you get this inspiration from? So I'm sure there's, there's a bunch of those kind of questions. Uh, that you know, you kind of but here's the thing. I mean, so you, you're, you're an artist, you'll understand this. Where does your creativity come from? It's kind of hard to answer that. It's yeah. like, well, I don't know, my brain. There's a tiny <laughs> little gnome who lives inside my brain and he's constantly churning on the creativity machine right. and it's spitting out ideas. Like, it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, a lot of these people, um, these artists, don't really have great answers for that beyond, you know, my ability comes from practice. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been doing this for a long time, so they become good artists. Yeah. Um, and... I think beyond that, they, so many of them take inspiration from the world around them. So if they're doing monster design or creature design, a lot of them talk to me about just going to the zoo, sketching yeah. real animals, understanding how they work, and then saying, how can I incorporate that into a dragon? Mm-hmm. Or forget a dragon, something like a, a, a Neo-Odiog, which is a completely made up bizarre creature with <laughs> tentacles and three legs and mouths everywhere, all this crazy stuff. Well, how can they incorporate their sort of real experiences into that? So a lot of their... Um, a lot of their approach centered on that, taking the real and bringing it into the fantasy, not to make the stuff realistic, but to yeah. kind of make it sit in a way that's approachable and understandable. Um, but others were just like, you know, uh, my art director told me they need this. <laughs> so that's what I gave them. And I tried to do it as cool as I possibly could. Um, so it was, it was different for everybody. Yeah. Um, a lot of our questions really focused on the history. Um, we really wanted to understand less where does your creativity come from, but yeah. more how did it work? You were at TSR um, or you're at Wizards of the Coast. How does that system work where there's a module or a game book or whatever with a concept? How does that get to the printed page? And how do you get there as an artist? And how did that get to us as the gamers? Um, so that was a big part of our questioning, um, just sort of understanding what life was like back then and how it all came together. And I would imagine you're also going to be touching upon the history of the game itself uh, for, the, for the techno geeks out there who want to know the ins and outs of how this was created. Well, limited, limited. One of the things we decided early on, um, we knew there are other things out there that really dive into the history of D&D and the history of the game mm-hmm. in a way where um, that's what they were devoting all their time to. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're going to do it really well. Mm-hmm. We had to talk a little bit about it to provide some context. Sure. Um, Dungeons and Dragons is a game. This is what it is. It's a role-playing game. This is what that means. Um, but we didn't do too deep a dive into that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's enough for you to understand this is a game and it is a fantasy role-playing game. Sure. Um, beyond that, if you watch this and you don't know how to play D&D, you're not going to walk away knowing how to play D&D. Exactly. However, you will understand why the art's so cool. <laughs> you you kind of touched upon it early on, but but take me even deeper into the genesis of this project. Uh, you sure. know, it's something that you're just a fan of. I mean, how how do you approach producers? How do you pitch this as a uh, as something that not only you would get other people excited about, but get people who will cut the checks and give the green light excited about this project? Cut the checks. Wow, that, that's some huge presumptions. Um, <laughs> all right, so here's the deal. The cool thing is we produce this ourselves. We, okay. I have a production company, X-Ray Films. Mm-hmm. Seth and Kelly have a production company called Cave Girl Productions. Um, so we didn't have to get it green lit in that regard. That's we great. decided we were going to make this thing. We figured out a budget, roughly, a little <laughs> after the fact. We were like, I guess our budget was this. That's how much we spent. And we just did it. That's the sort of beauty of independent documentaries. Sure. If you have a great idea, 
you can just do it. Um, we're lucky in that, you know, I was shooting it, so I didn't have to get paid. Um, I own all my own equipment, so we didn't have to have rental fees incurred with that. Um, Kelly is an editor, so we knew on the post-production right. side she was going to do the editing. Seth is an, a location and a post-production audio engineer. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, he's a lawyer. <laughs> on top of that, he's a contracts lawyer. So between the three of us, we handled most of the expensive parts of making a movie, or this type of movie, this type sure. of documentary, where you don't need a very large crew. So that made our lives a lot easier. Great. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you self-finance it for a while, and eventually you do what so many movies do. You go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo or some sort of crowdfunding, and you raise money for post-production. Even though we had an editor, we had an audio sure. engineer in place, there's so many other things. We had animation, we have color correction, you have music, and all, all these other things that need to get paid for. Um, We're always under the impression that time is not money. I mean, that's a saying for a reason. I mean, you know, some people ask if you can, you know, if you can do everything yourself, you know, what do you need the money for? It's like, well, I need to eat. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the time I'm it's, spending. I have to you know, you're, you're doing this around your, your other work. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I produce videos for other people. Mm -hmm. um, Kelly's an editor. Mm -hmm. Seth's a lawyer. These are things that pay our bills. Um, and you, but you have, you know, so you're covered, but you have to really approach this stuff as a labor of love. You have yeah. to really decide this is something you're passionate about. This is a story that has to get told. Um, and you have to be the one who tells it. Yeah. Um, otherwise there's no way to stick with the project for three years that yeah. during that process is only costing you money. <laughs> um, it's costing you money. It's costing you time. It's costing you your sanity, possibly your health. Um, all these things <laughs> because you care so much about this and you're confident that other people are going to care about it too. Yeah. Um, the, the sort of wonderful thing about this world is if you like a thing, there's a very good chance there are other people out there who like that thing also. Yeah. And because of the way um, we can get things out these days, different yeah. streaming services, everything else, if nothing else, you put the thing on YouTube, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there are other people who will see this thing. Mm -hmm. So it makes it in some ways a little bit easier for um, indie doc makers to do this kind of stuff. You mm -hmm. can go in thinking, well, someone's going to care. Yeah. Um, and then you cross your fingers and just sort of leap from that airplane and hope your parachute's packed properly. And, <laughs> you know, what's uh, what was one of the most exciting uh, interviews that you had within this, you named some of the big heavyweights, but, uh, but what was one experience where you went in with a specific set of questions and came out with an answer that you just, just completely surprised you? Um, that's interesting. Um, it was, it was never so much as over of a much a matter of overturning our expectations. Mm -hmm. We had talked to these artists. We do a lot of pre-interviews. We do a lot of pre-interviews. Right. Um, we had met these people at conventions. We'd become somewhat like at the time, casually friends with them. Um, so the conversations had been ongoing by the time you sit down in front of the camera. That said, some of the small details, the stories you get often come out of nowhere. Um, a great story we got was from the artist Brahm, mm -hmm. who told us that one day the marketing department came in, a bunch of executives. They went over to Jeff Easley and they said, Jeff, we have this really important project for you. So we want you to not only paint it, but we want you to use your most expensive color, which is kind of an insane thing to tell an artist because the yeah. color, the cost of the tube of paint has nothing to do <laughs> with whether it's an appropriate color. And then another time they came to him, they said, it's really important. So we want you to use all your colors. There's like this attitude that 
the sheer volume of paint used somehow <laughs> justifies the cost or impresses the people who are going to see this thing. So stories like that would come That's up amazing. a lot um, that show this kind of disconnect um, that the artist's working under. So we always thought that stuff was great. Um, so we I got lots such, of things like that. I have such a deep insecurity that for, when you just mentioned that, I go, does that really matter? I actually just <laughs> that you said that. I, I, does that? Does that? Literally does not. I, you know, I get my stuff online and... Uh... <laughs> no, then, then you're a failure. Yeah, clearly, clearly. clearly your stuff's never going to stand up. <laughs> clearly. Everyone um, knows. Yeah. Something about D&D that is actually fascinating right now, too, is just in general, this pop culture universe uh, has just exploded. Uh, not just D&D, but obviously the Marvel movies, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, my co-host last, and I last week were actually talking about how there is no delineation between... Or at least we feel like jocks and, and geeks and nerds. It feels like everyone is just allowed to enjoy this stuff. Is that something you're, you're finding uh, when in the process of making this documentary is just the sheer amount of people that typically you might not see would be kind of game for this kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, the funny thing is these last few years, so I grew up, I grew up in the original kind of heyday of Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s mm -hmm. when we got the cartoon, we got a line of toys from LJN. Yeah. Um, but we also got the satanic panic and all these other things. <laughs> but what we were definitely seeing was the injection of Dungeons and Dragons into the mainstream. I mean, this mm -hmm. was the time, um, at least shortly after time, in the late 70s, D&D went from being in hobby shops to being in bookstores. And that's where you yeah. saw a lot of these other artists start to come in easily in Elmore and Parkinson and Caldwell, people who could kind of, help them compete visually yeah. with um, a lot of these other things that, that were on the shelves, paperbacks and things like that. So um, I saw that and then I saw it all taper off again um, in, in the late nineties um, in the early two thousands, I saw D and D kind of drift back into the background. Um, gamers were still into it, but it wasn't this pop culture force that it was mm -hmm. now. I'm, I'm amazed and, and happy to see that D&D is becoming a lifestyle brand. Yeah. It's, it's made that shift. You have Joe Manganiello with his um, Death Saves clothing line. Sure. You have um, all, these, all these live streams of people playing D&D <laughs> on Twitch and on YouTube and stuff. Um, you know, the, the cartoon that was just funded to the tune of like $12 million or $11 million. Um, all this stuff that's happening, um, I think really shows that it's broken beyond the confines yeah. of just being a hobby or just being a game that people play. It's becoming a brand the way comic books are a brand or Disney yeah. is a brand where people are getting into mm -hmm. the idea of Dungeons and Dragons and might not have ever actually played the game. And I don't think their connection to it is any less legitimate because yeah. of it. There yeah. are all these ways to enter into this thing that is Dungeons and Dragons. And I hope they all eventually want to play the game but it's becoming bigger than that, maybe. And I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. But yeah. it is great. It is awesome to see so many people getting involved. Um, so many different people getting involved. Yeah. You know, it's not the same people sitting down to roll dice all the time. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's fantastic. And it's something I'm definitely seeing. Impressive. Uh, this is our Game of Thrones episode. Uh, we, are, we are both previewing the finale and we're, and we're waxing poetic about uh, Sunday's episode. Uh, are you a fan of the show? And what influence uh, or, or what impact do you think Dungeons & Dragons had on the, on, not the success of Game of Thrones because it was its own thing, but you know, again, it's a mainstream fantasy series that by all accounts really should never even get greenlit to begin with if you, if you think about it. But do you think Dungeons & Dragons had an impact on it? 
Well, I should start by saying, admitting that I don't watch Game of Thrones. Oh, it no. is Wait, it's because I don't have HBO. Oh. <laughs> um, my wife and I cut the cord ages ago. Mm-hmm. So to watch it, it's always been, okay, I have to wait till the season's finally streaming. Sure. And then it's become this thing where it's like, okay, well, I'm not ready to sit down and commit to this yet because sure. it really feels like a commitment. Um, and now we that it's almost... It, it is. It is. A yeah, well, and now that it's almost over, I feel like I can jump into it. Um, oh. When it's done, I will be that guy who watches it like three years after everybody else. And honestly, look, everyone's talking about how brutal Game of Thrones is and how such great fantasy and all the dragons and everything else. I got news for you. Have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? (laughs) What do you think I do every week? You can have your Game of Thrones. Oh, someone was murdered? Welcome to my (laughs) game. Roll initiative. I got news for you. You are in trouble. (laughs) <laughs> so it, to me, it's like, okay, whatever. Um, but it, it does look awesome. So, okay, so with that out of the way, um, <laughs> I think that uh, D&D has absolutely had a lot of influence on what we think of as modern fantasy and how we yeah. visualize modern fantasy. When you think of things like World of Warcraft, when you think of things like Skyrim, video games, stuff like that, yeah, um, that's where you see a lot of it. And then Lord of the Rings. Obviously, Lord of the Rings precedes Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. but the visual vocabulary of it is absolutely, I think, the result of the visual vocabulary of Dungeons and Dragons, which is interesting because yeah. Dungeons and Dragons pulls from Lord of the Rings. Sure. Um, even though Gary Gygax says he doesn't like, said he didn't like Lord of the Rings, and, <laughs> and he sort of grudgingly pulled from it. Sure. Um, he was a shrewd, shrewd businessman. I understood <laughs> that. Um, but there's this sort of circle going on there. Um, and I think Game of uh, Game of Thrones probably it's part of that evolutionary thing. But I think it owes as much um, to Steve Jackson and Lord of the Rings as anything else. Um, but if you really go back to that kind of early, early thing, um, I think De- uh, Dungeons and Dragons is definitely an influence. But that is building off of things like Frank Frazetta and the sure. artwork that he did yep. in the fifties and sixties and seventies um, and onward. Um, it's it's. I never want to lay the uh, sort of um, evolution of something on one thing because everything's building off everything before it. But to to ignore the role D and D played, being the biggest fantasy outlet throughout the eighties, yeah, um, that would be a mistake. So I do think it's it's probably look someone working on that show played D and D. There's no <laughs> way they didn't. Um, um, so I think it must. But I don't know. I don't know. I can't say for certain. Well, tell everyone out there where they can find it and uh, where they can watch the movie. Uh, I, the Beholder, is um, everywhere. You can watch it on the moon. No, um, <laughs> we're on iTunes and we're on Google Play and we're on Amazon Video and we're on PlayStation and Xbox, um, all sorts of things. If you go to iTheBeholderMovie.com, we have a list of places with links. Um, you can find us on Facebook, I, the Beholder Movie. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Twitter, I underscore movie. Thanks, That's Twitter, E-Y-E, for that. That's E-Y-E, right? E-Y-E? M-O-E-Y-E, yes. Like yeah. Eyeballs, um, <laughs> and we're on we're on Instagram. Um, I think we're Eye of the Beholder movie on that as well, but it's so hard to keep track. Brian, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, anytime you got something going on, feel free to drop on by our, our podcast. We would Thanks. love to have you. Thanks so much for having us. We appreciate it. All right. When we come back, we go spinning the racks.
Welcome back to Secrets of the Sire. Again, we do this every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, on the Sire Studios Digital Network. I want to thank our guest uh, from Eye of the Beholder, the co-director, Brian Stillman. He's also a producer on The Toys That Made Us on Netflix. Uh, go on to Amazon, iTunes, check out the documentary. It is really amazing. We got a screener copy. We got to watch a little bit of it before uh, we got to interview him. It's totally worth it, especially if you're a fan of the show. Uh, sorry, fan of the game. If you're a gamer. Uh, plus, if you're just a fan of fantasy art in general, it's unbelievable. So definitely check that out. Before we go spinning the racks, my lovely wife wanted to bring up one more prophecy that so far has not come to pass. Which one is that? The prince that was promised. Okay. Right, Hassan, you haven't seen anything to this effect. Now, he'll, yeah, argue, that, he'll argue that it has been done, but what is, what is the prophecy? The, um, okay, hold on. Azora High is the, the yeah. prince of yeah, so there will come a day after a long summer when the stars bleed and the cold breath of darkness falls heavy on the world. In this dread hour, a warrior shall draw from the fire a burning sword, and that sword shall be Lightbringer, mm. the red sword of heroes, and he who clasps it shall be Azor High come again, and the darkness shall flee before him. So in the books, it said that he'll stand against the darkness, and if he fails, the world fails with him. Now let me ask a question though. Has that been brought up at all in the show? Yeah. Yeah. Like they did that's that's what they the was promised for like yeah. many seasons. Yeah. Okay. And I don't particularly re- recall it, but I just want to make sure that it's it's one of those things because I know with uh, with Caitlin Stark that it hasn't you know Lady Stonewall that's just that's a yeah, book that thing. Has to happen. Yeah. That's a book thing. Period. You know, and it yeah. has no influence or bearing on that. All right. Before we go spin the rack, Secrets and Sires brought to you by all of our beloved patrons, uh, Craig Caruso, Einar Peterson, Matt Byer, Ashley Heike, not her name, Omar Morales, <laughs> our program director, Stephanie Dolce, and as always, our Uber fan who's joining us today, Christina Fix. Dolce. Fix. We do this every <laughs> week. We go spinning the racks. Spin the rack, spin the racks. <laughs> We are going to save our Avengers Endgame Spin the Racks for next week, but we've got a couple of those too, and oh man, we're going strictly Game of Thrones right now. Another Game of Thrones gaffe, Jamie Lannister grows his hand back. Just when Coffeegate was about to simmer down, Game of Thrones serving up another Simmer down, oh, metaphor. Mm. <laughs> you let me finish? Is serving up another hot screw-up. Mm. Oh, oh mm. that's Fresh off the anachronistic appearance, this is from New York Post, appearance of the modern-day Java Cup in episode four, uh, Jamie Lannister appears to have miraculously grown back his severed hand in a promo image from episode five, The Bells. Uh, HBO retaliated, however, and said that is a promo photo, therefore they did not CGI in anything or whatever the case is, and the actual video itself, he does have his hand. But... As mentioned, this comes on the heels of Coffeegate, which Game of Thrones star Sophie, Sophie Turner blames on Amelia Clark. Uh, Game of Thrones actress Amelia Clark, who portrays Mother of Dragons Daenerys Targaryen on the hit HBO series, is responsible for the modern-day coffee cup, according to Sophie Turner. Uh, she was on Fallon, and she said, let's clear this up. That's in a, uh, So she was being blamed because she was previously photographed on set with a similar cup but she threw her fellow actor under the, under the bus. Let's clear this up. That's in a different episode. Turner said of the onset snap, which shows her holding the... Yeah, but she's also cup. with Liotta Mormont, who had definitely died the previous episode. So Yeah. And also, we all have the same cups for all our water and tea and everything. So I'm just going to go with 
I mean, look who's placed in front of Amelia Clark. She's the culprit. Larger issue, do these gaffes or apparent gaffes lend credence to the theory that this is has been a rushed season, that, that even with all this time to prepare, they're missing these key things? Yeah, I think the key thing that they missed is that nobody died by slap chop from Jamie Lannister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He did slap. I wanted he, a he golden did. hand slap chop death. He did. Get he it. did get a couple in on Euron though, so that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was that was also one of the dumbest fights I've seen, and it could have again if there was more, just the fight itself was not dumb. The outcome to the fight was not dumb. Had they had more time to flesh out the rivalry between those two a little bit more, or at least build it up to a little bit more of a crescendo. It just, it, it struck me as odd that you're something, on. Something is up with that. Something is up with the, with the reason that Benioff and Weiss decided to truncate the last two seasons. Yeah. It's very, I mean, I understand HBO saying they wanted two more seasons and these guys wanted to move on, but yeah. I don't understand like taking your magnum opus, the thing that put you on the map yeah. and just, and just, just toss it, just throwing it. And the last in, in, in the uh, in, in the landing, like just just not sticking the landing with it. So I think something is something more. Yeah, something is that, coming. Yeah, something, <laughs> something behind the scenes that no one's willing to talk about. Yeah. is why these two seasons. And I mean, maybe HBO did say, "Look, I'm not." HBO is notorious for that. Like when mm-hmm. a show is not when a show is coming to an end, they like to truncate the endings for whatever. They'll cut the episodes to a last season. Down, down in half for some reason. They won't commit to a full season. Although, I do know that supposedly they wanted more. Right. And, and, oh, the, two, and the two showrunners decided they didn't want to do it. But something is up because it just doesn't seem... It doesn't make sense. The decision doesn't make any sense. That's what we like to call a segue. Game of Thrones co-creators David Benioff and D.B. Weiss to direct the first Star Wars film after Rise of Skywalker. They're trading in their swords for lightsabers, according to the Daily News. Game of Thrones showrunners David Benioff and D.B. Weiss will direct the first Star Wars movie following this December's highly anticipated Rise of Skywalker. Disney CEO Bob Iger confirmed on Tuesday. It was announced last year that Benioff and Weiss will lead a series of Star Wars flicks unrelated to the Skywalker saga, but the timing of the films had not yet been revealed. Tuesday's confirmation, which Iger made at the Moffat Nathanson Media and Communication Summit comes a week after Disney announced three new Star Wars films slated to appear starting in 2022. Maybe they have a Yoda in their ear. Maybe they have a lightsaber in their ear. Maybe the bug to do Star Wars. Maybe they are like J.J. Abrams, where he kind of did a Star Trek movie, but he was always been a Star Wars fan and wanted to do Star Wars. Maybe it's maybe this has been developing for a few years now, and they just kind of said we need to we need to break free of Game of Thrones. I mean, maybe you're right, Hassan. But that would be yeah, but that's, that that doesn't make any sense though. To we're we're gonna we're gonna toss this. We're gonna throw this so that we can make some make Star Wars. You know, yeah. It doesn't make to me. Doesn't make any sense. So just finish what you started. Finish it as best as possible. And, and hey, look, maybe they think they did. Yeah. You know? and there's then, a, there's a level of ego and arrogance, right? In second viewing, if we all watch everything all over again, we might think. The second time around, oh, this isn't quite as bad as it was the I'm first time I'm just going to say around. that. Yeah. Like, once the other two books are out, and we read the other two books, and then we go back and watch it, like, I feel like maybe we'll be like, okay, 
You know okay who's got to be loving this? It's got to be George R. R. Martin because I've had this theory for a while. That he's holding those books back so he can see. He's not. The reaction. He came out in an interview that he's not. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's pissed about it too. He's yeah. pissed about it. He thinks that's what he's doing. Well, I, I just—he could say all he wants. I mean, I'm sitting there saying, why would he release these books? He could—he can almost test litmus test out this ending, and just see what people like and didn't like, and then kind of go off in his own direction if he wants to. I mean, it's—it's it's the perfect thing. The only thing that I think would be bad for him and his legacy is if he immediately released the books. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think he literally is still writing them. Yeah. But he's I think not. People are so unhappy with this, the way this season is going. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna soak those books up. He is the winner yeah. here, right? He yeah. is the winner of this whole thing. I mean, there's no question. All right, we are the winners every week because of you guys. <laughs> Co- keep commenting, keep joining us, subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, go like us on Facebook, uh, go follow us on Twitter. All just look up Secrets of the Sire. Next week, well, lo and behold, we're going to talk Game of Thrones again. Did the series finale live up to the hype? We are going to give you our full review. Plus, we're going to count down the top five, maybe three. We haven't decided yet. Series finales of all time and where does Game of Thrones rank? And we've got Source Point Press's Travis McIntyre to give us a scoop from Motor City Comic Con where Sire Studios will be in attendance. We'll see you all guys next week.